ask that you take God's word into your hands and turn to the book of First Peter. So uh, open God's word to the book of First Peter. If you don't know where the book of First Peter is, go to the end of the Bible, which of course at the end is the book of Revelation. You'll go through uh, Jude, go into your left, Jude, Third John, Second John, First John, and then uh, the book of Second Peter. And right before Second Peter is the book of First Peter. So start out at the end, and you'll find your way as you move towards the beginning relatively quickly to the five-chapter book we call First. Peter. Well, we finish up our series that we've entitled uh, Live to Give, focusing in on the issue of stewardship and learning how we ought to be uh, doing all that we can to using that which God has given to us, all of our time, all of our talents, all of our treasure, and this week of our testimony to the glory and to the furthering of the kingdom of God. My hope and my prayer has been that not that we would all just have these huge changes. While a preacher would love to see those huge changes uh, in the life of the listener, my desire has been through this short series that we would be reminded that we don't own anything. We don't own anything. It's all God's. Whatever we see, whatever our hands find themselves clutching to, whether it's the clothing on our backs, whether it's the money in our pocket, the car, or um, the house that we live in, whether it's the talents that we have, the gifts that God has given us, whether it has to do with the time, our calendars, whatever it is, that we would say, Lord, this is yours. And once we understand that it is the Lord's, that we then in turn would ask the question, how would you expect me to live with that which you've given me? And if you are able to pull that out, if you are able to make that change, then I am very happy, I am very content as your preacher that we've accomplished what we've tried to do here. If we would just simply ask, Lord, what would you have me to do with the time, talents, and treasures that you have given me? then we're on the right track of being the godly and effective stewards that God has asked us to be a part of. Now we come to the point of testimony. And the testimony, when you hear the word testimony, for many of us will think of this idea of a courtroom with a witness on the witness stand giving his testimony. If you've been a believer for a long time, then the word testimony is the, is the time where someone gets up and they say, well, uh, before I met Jesus, I was doing this, that, and the other thing. And then someone gave me a gospel track or someone shared a message with me about Jesus and, and I accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior and now this is how I'm living. While those testimony, those examples of testimony may be good and true, for the believer, when it comes to stewardship, they fall short of the entire meaning of the word testimony. Remember the definition we've been working with with regards to stewardship. Stewardship is everything we do after we say we believe. And so the way we use our time, the way we use our talents, the way we use our treasures, and now the way we use our testimony, which in fact, your testimony is not just the words that are articulated, but it's the actions that come after your words. It's not your talk just of Jesus Christ, but it's your walk as a believer, as a follower of Jesus Christ. That entails the testimony that we have. And the problem that we have is we're either gonna be a good testimony or a bad, we're gonna have a bad testimony. And so the question I want us to address this morning before I start reading our text is the following. What type of person does the world see in you? When you go to work, 
Do they see someone who's a follower of Jesus Christ or one who lives just like the rest of the people in your department, the rest of the people in your workplace? When you're at school, do they see a student who loves the Lord Jesus, who is serving the Lord Jesus, or another one who's looking just to be popular, just to uh, win the uh, affection of that guy or that girl in the class? How about your neighbors and friends? When they look at you, do they see Jesus Christ? Sadly, in our world today, many of us, many of us, including your preacher, find themselves going back and forth. We want to have a good testimony, and so on Sunday, we give a great testimony. We love Jesus, and we tell people how much we love Jesus on Sunday. But on Monday, when the world comes around us, we find ourselves backing away from that testimony. The things that we articulated, the truths that we hold to, we find ourselves backing away. And instead of being sold out for the cause of Christ, we have to be honest that many times we find ourselves failing and find ourselves living like the world. So we need some words of wisdom. We need God to speak in our lives to this because we fail over and over again as being good stewards of our testimony. So let's look at this passage of Scripture. I'm going to ask that you would stand as we read God's Word. First Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. This is what the Word of the Lord has to share with us today. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. And Lord, I thank you for what it's going to teach us today. Lord, I pray that I would be uh, moved out of the way and that you would speak. Lord, I fail at this all the time. Lord, many times my talk is so good and yet my walk finds itself faltering far behind. At other times, Lord, even my talk is unbecoming of a believer. And so, Lord, I pray that if there's any in this room that struggles as I do, that they would open their hearts today to what you have to share to us. Lord, we recognize that we live in a world that is hostile towards you, that is hostile towards the gospel. Lord, we live in a world that really wants nothing to do with you, and yet you've called us to engage that world. You've called us to uh, pursue those who find themselves lost and in need of a Savior. Lord, to be able to do that, we just can't preach a good message, but we must live that message day in and day out. Father, we pray for the Spirit's leading and guiding so that we are able to accomplish that, so that we are able to be uh, men and women, not just who have a good word to say, but who live such good lives amongst the unbelievers, even if they accuse us of doing wrong. In those moments, Peter says that they will glorify God on the day that he visits. Father, I pray that we would live such those, those lives that are so good, not so that we would be known as good people, but that you would be known as a good God. Father, lead us now in this time. In Christ's name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. 
For those that don't know, who haven't been around here very often, I've been told that I have uh, two part-time jobs, and that's not true. I have two full-time jobs. The first full-time job I have, you're watching me do, and that is preaching and teaching and, and helping lead this church here at Village Bible. But the other job that I have is that of a caterer. I run a family catering business. And one thing that I have loved about that is that I feel like I'm connected as a caterer with Jesus. I don't know if you know it, but Jesus was a caterer. If you look at Jesus' ministry, there were numerous times where Jesus involved himself in the serving of food. You look at the Gospel of John, chapter 2. Jesus hasn't even really started his public ministry yet, and he finds himself at a wedding. And the question comes up, hey, does anybody know where there's any extra wine for the wedding? And nobody can find any of the wine, and they go to Jesus. And Jesus says, hey, I can take care of your wine issue. I can deal with that situation. And the first thing that he does as a public ministry is he caters and addresses the issue of needing more wine. Now, just before people start thinking that Jesus just has a bar service going on, Jesus wants people to know that it's not just drinks that he serves. And so he gathers through his preaching later in his ministry thousands of people on two different occasions. One, there were 4,000 people and another 5,000 people. And what does Jesus do? He serves them. And I tell you, one of the questions I have when we get to heaven is, Jesus, how many serving lines did you have? How did you figure out how things were going to go? How was all the planning around that? And I can really resonate with that because I've gone from preaching a sermon to catering a meal in, in very short order. And so I would love to hear how Jesus had done that. Now, the thing that I really want to know is how he kept his prices so low. You see, what Jesus was able to do, unlike me at 5Bs, is Jesus was able to cover his food costs really well. 5,000 people, he uses uh, five loaves and two fishes. You know what kind of profit margins you can get when you just have five loaves and two fishes? And the funny thing was, he didn't even have to buy it. He borrowed a kid's lunch to make it happen. Jesus found himself over and over again serving people food. Even at the end of Jesus' ministry, we find him gathering a group of individuals for a small, intimate gathering of 13 people called the Last Supper. And Jesus oversees that. And so over and over again as a caterer, my heart gets filled with joy seeing my Savior and my Lord doing the same two things that now I'm called to do, serve people with food and then serve them with the preaching of God and his word. Now the Bible's chalked full of this uh, adage or this metaphor of good food and good cooking and good taste when it comes to the Christian life. The Bible says, in fact, in two places, here in 1 Peter, as well as in the Psalms, that we are to taste and see that the Lord is good. He doesn't say, look and see that the Lord is good, or hear and see that the Lord is good, or touch and see that the Lord is good. The word that is used is taste. What Jesus is articulating to us through Peter is that the, the Christian life is something that we taste, and the metaphor there works so wonderfully because it's not that we just taste and, okay, that's, that's great and wonderful, but that we were to taste it and to taste all that was a part of it, and at the end of our enjoying of that meal, to see that the Lord is good. Notice the other things that are said in the scriptures in the book of Colossians. Paul tells the people that he wants his conversations that they have with people to be full of grace, and then he says, seasoned with salt. And the reason why he says that is he's telling him, I want it to be flavorful. 
I want people to walk away from their conversations with you and say, that was a good conversation. As you walk away from a good meal saying, as you push yourself back from the table after having thirds and fourths at the, at the buffet line, that was a wonderful meal. That was great. I enjoyed that. That's the conversation that Paul wants us to have when it comes to our conversations with others. Jesus uses this idea of salt with the um, uh, Sermon on the Mount when he says that we are to be the salt of the earth. And again, we are to be so flavorful, and of course salt gives a desire to uh, desire more of it because of its flavor and because of what it does to um, that which it salts. We as Christians are to live such lives that are flavorful, that are tasty, so that people will only desire more, not less. Now let me put this to you. When people see you in the workplace, when people see you in your neighborhoods, when people see you at work or at play, in the family or with people you don't even know, do they walk away saying, I want to see more of them or less? Do they say about you, that person speaks about their Savior, and I want to hear more about that or less? I might be trite in saying this, but I believe what the scriptures are telling us over and over again is if we want to be effective in our testimony, then our testimony must be flavorful. It must be, and I'm using it in quotes, tasty. We have to have a desire for people, when they see us living the life of Christ and pursuing Jesus as our Lord and Savior, they should be looking at our life and saying, I want that. I need that. I got to have that. That looks, uh, that looks attractive. That looks tasty. There's nothing worse than when you see someone eating something that you only long and desire for, that you can only think about it. Just a couple days ago, I was working on an event, and, and this 12-year-old boy came over, and he had this chocolate-covered um, ice cream, soft-serve ice cream. And he sat there as if as a temptation, just slowly licking it. And you know how warm it's been. You know, there's nothing greater. And I'm standing next to this grill, cooking up food, and he's just sitting there. And I longed for that. I started thinking, I wonder what his tongue is tasting. Oh, man. And I couldn't, and the whole day, all I could long for was a chocolate-dipped ice cream cone. That is how our lives should be as we serve Christ. That when people see us, what they see is they, I want that. I want the joy that they have. Man, how did they get that kind of peace? How are they able to endure trials and struggles? I want to be like that. I want to have that kind of joy, that type of contentment. And as we sit there, and, and to pardon the metaphor, as we sit there and taste that the Lord is good, as we go, mmm, Jesus is good. Jesus meets me and loves me. Oh, man, have you tasted Jesus, how wonderful Jesus is? It is then and only then that we will see a lost world come to know Christ. And that's how we have to live. And that's how we have to serve. But here's the problem. I'm going to give you two points that aren't in your outline, so don't get nervous. But I want you to write these down. The first thing that we need to understand is that's usually not what we do with the world. When we pursue the world, when we talk about our testimony, how we live, how we talk, how we act in the world around us, whether at work or play, our first response that we do 
as believers is one of two extremes. Number one, write this down, we isolate ourselves because of the world's wickedness. We isolate, just write it somewhere in your outlines there, isolate ourselves because of the world's wickedness. We're believers. We're pursuing purity. We're pursuing obedience in Christ Jesus. And so we look at the world and it's filled with debauchery. It's filled with sin. And not only that there's just sin, but they're parading this sin all over the place. And so our natural response is, I don't want to be a part of it. And I'm going to do everything in my power to insulate myself from that which is in the world. But that, we still are working, we're still shopping in the world, we're still doing all those things. But when it comes to real engagement for Christ Jesus, we have insulated ourselves from being a part of it because we just say, man, the world's going to hell in a handbasket. What are we going to do? How are we going to change this uh, world for Jesus Christ? And so we just remove ourselves from it. The second extreme is just as bad, but it goes on the other side. And instead of isolating ourselves or insulating ourselves from the wickedness of the world, we find ourselves imitating the world. Write that down. We find ourselves imitating the world. And what happens is, is man, we look at the world and we know what the world is selling isn't what we should be buying, but boy, those shows are really funny. And that music sounds really good. And the books that they're reading, man, they are just really, they're page turners. And the things and the culture and the things that they're pursuing, well, I know that God's not all for it. It looks too good to give up. And so what we begin to do is our lives begin to look just like that of the world. And instead of isolating ourselves, man, we've jumped in. We do what my boys do when they see a swimming pool, cannonball, and they jump and legs get all curled in and, and they make this huge splash. And study after study shows us that Christians go one of these two ways. Either they isolate themselves totally or they find themselves immersing themselves into the world because they fall in love with it. That's not what we should do. Neither of those allow us to have the testimony that we need to for Christ. And so what should we do? If we're going to live lives of godly testimonies, then it involves investing wisely in the world. Investing wisely with the world. And what that means is, the Bible speaks to this, and there's some real wisdom we need to hear from the scriptures. The Bible tells us we are to be salt and light in the world. To be salt and to be light means salt has to be close to the item that which it's going to salt or to preserve. There's proximity there. For light to be light, it has to engage in that world of darkness. If there's light all over the place, what good is another light in that world? But I will tell you where we need light is when this place is dark and when it's night out, we want to turn the switch for light to shine in that world of darkness. So Jesus says, you are a Christian so that you can be in close proximity with the world and that you can bring something that which the world does not have to shed new light on that world of darkness. And so Jesus says, you got to be there. you got to be close to it. He doesn't say, hey, if you're a believer, get out, stay away, and uh, don't do um, anything that they're doing. Notice he tells us in the scriptures as well that we are to be in the world but then he adds a caveat, and he says, not of the world. Jesus recognizes that we are going to be engaged in this world. And there's no better example of that than Jesus himself. Jesus was with the people. 
And if you notice, one of the accusations that Jesus got over and over again was that he hung out with the wrong kind of people, that he was engaged in quote-unquote worldly things. But nowhere in Jesus' ministry do we see Jesus becoming a part of that world, that he began to embrace the culture of that world. So Jesus was there. He was rubbing shoulders with those individuals, but always pointing them to his father's business, always pointing them to their need for a savior. And so we need to invest wisely. We need to also recognize that which this book of 1 Peter says earlier in the book, that we are to be a part of this world, but we are to recognize we are aliens and strangers that we're just here for a short season, that we shouldn't just start digging in roots and, and putting in, literally, we, we live day to day, moment by moment, and what we carry with us is a tent because this isn't our home. And yet so many of us find ourselves digging into the culture. And so how are we gonna live out this tasty Christianity? How are we going to live these attractive lives? It begins by wisely understanding our place as a believer in the world. But notice then, the, if you will, the job description. Write these three things down. Before we even get into the text, we gotta know these things because if we don't have these things, then what we learn in the text will be no good. The first thing we have to recognize, if we're gonna be attractive to this world, if we are going to be that tasty um, preview of what a life in Christ looks like, then it means, first of all, we must be Christ-like. We must be Christ-like. Again, write that somewhere in there. There's plenty of area to put that. How are we to show the world Christ? We're to show the world Christ as we live out Christ's example in our own lives. The world does not know Christ. The world may not read the scriptures. And so the first Christ, if you will, they're going to see is you and I. And if they're not seeing it in us, how are they ever going to see it? How will they ever be um, a preview of that? One, one pastor uh, that I love listening to says, the job of the Christian is to be the movie trailer for the movie. You know the movie trailer, the preview, two minutes, you get a two-minute clip and you see some of the best jokes and, and some of the greatest car chases and, and action-packed parts of the movie. You don't see the whole thing. You don't experience the whole movie because to experience the whole movie, you've got to go experience it yourself and see it from start to finish. The job of the Christian is to whet the appetite so people, if you will, as we show the good preview, the job then for the individual is to say, I, I want to see more of that. I just watched a movie the other day based on what I saw in the preview. And I was glad to see that the preview was just a taste of what the entire movie was. In fact, it, it even exceeded my expectations. That's the job of you and I is to be that preview that shows Christ. And then the, as, after they've seen us, they go, well, I got to see more. I want to hear more. I want to be a part of more. I want to experience more. And so then they go to Christ where they experience the full abundance of what it is in the Christian life. We need to be Christ-like. We need to be that preview for them to see Jesus. Jesus says when we fail to do this, we hide our light under a bushel and it becomes dim or we are so ineffective that the salt that we are loses its saltiness and it's trampled on the ground. 
Talk about ineffective. Talk about a lack of stewardship. When we fail to be Christ-like, we fail our opportunity that we have been given to be the steward that God has called us to be. And for some of us, the last thing we're thinking about now is showing Christ-likeness to the world around us. Write this down too. It must be comprehensive. It must be comprehensive. Literally, what that means is you can't have one part of your life that's sacred. Let's say this side of the room is the sacred. And this is all the things that you do. And each person over here is representing things that we do for the sacred. We go to church and, and we go to small group and maybe we read our Bible and, and, and maybe we fellowship with some Christians. And so we've got a list of things that we do and those are our sacred things. Those are the Christian things we do. But sorry, this side, this is all the worldly things we do. You guys look a little worldly today, okay? And this is going to work, and, and this is hanging out with friends, and this is what we choose to watch in our entertainment, and, and how we spend our money and all of that. And what people have done, what Christians have done, what I have done is I've separated the two. There's my Christian life, and then there's my life. And so what I do on Sunday is very different than what I do on Monday. And when we do that, the only thing we show the world is that we have got a Sunday morning date with Jesus. And I'll tell you, the world is full of people who date Jesus. The world is not filled with people who follow Jesus, who deny themselves and take up the cross for Jesus. And so if we're going to do this right, it means we've got to be Christ-like and it needs to impact all of who we are. And so Christ becomes, and it's a great illustration, because the cross is that which connects the sacred to the secular. It connects what we do on Sunday with what we do on Monday through Saturday. It, it, it tells us that it's not just what we sing at church and what we hear at church, but it's how we spend our money, how we choose to watch the programs that we do, how we spend our time and the things that we invest in. It is comprehensive and finally, it involves a commitment. Write that down. If you're going to have a testimony in your workplace or your school, if you're going to do it in your neighborhood, then you can't go back and forth. And there's some of us that what we'll do is we'll hear a message like this and, and we'll say, okay, I've got to change what I'm going to do. And so for a couple of weeks, we go over here and we're all sacred all the time. And then something comes up, or maybe God doesn't come through like we want him to, and we say, you know what, that's not working, so I'll just kind of go back to doing my thing. You will not have a testimony until you have day in and day out shown the world that you're a follower of Jesus Christ in the good times, the bad times, and might I add, even the ugly times. And that's what we need to understand. Probably the most attractive thing in my parents' life Probably the one thing that I covet more than anything is the testimony they have. Living in a community for over 35 years, or 33 years, if anybody was to tell you, uh, if you were to go into their town in, into Hinkley and say, what do you know of Bill and Michelle Badal? I can assure you the first thing that those people, if they know my parents, the first thing they would say is they're good Christian people. I want that. I want the first description of people, not to say, man, wow, he was really, really good in track in high school, or, or he runs a good business, or, or uh, you know, he helps with the PTO, and that's good. Those are all great things. I don't even want him just to say he's a great dad. I see him at all his kids' baseball games. That's wonderful. 
But the first thing I want the people to say is what I've heard people say of my parents, and that is they love Jesus. And I see it all the time. That's what I want. And if you're a believer, that's what you should want, is to be known as one who follows Christ, but that involves a commitment. You're not going to be known as a follower of Jesus Christ until you've gone into the good times, the bad times, and even the ugly times. I love the Cubs, okay? And people know I love the Cubs because I love them not when they just won the World Series in 1908, okay? I loved them during all the mediocre years, and there's a lot of them. I loved them when Steve Bartman tried to catch the foul ball and we lost the chance to go to the World Series. And I've loved them when they look absolutely horrific. And you know what people will say about Tim? He loves the Cubs. And it's because I've been with them throughout that. Understand this. If you are going to live a life of a godly testimony, it means you love Jesus at all times and in all places and in all ways. So now that gets us to the text. You say, good, Tim, we're going to finally deal with the text. We are. But we needed this foundation because if we don't have this, then these five things I'm going to give you are just going to run right by you. So let's look at the text. The text tells us that we are going to suffer. Notice the heading in most of your Bibles, suffer for doing good. What do you mean, suffer for doing good? If you do good, why would you suffer? Peter is articulating to us that if we're going to engage this world, it's going to get ugly. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be hard at times. The world that Peter's speaking of is the same world that we live in today. In Peter's world, people didn't like Jesus. In Peter's world, people saw Jesus as a threat to the way they lived their life. And so as a result of that, Peter says the world's going to intimidate you. The world's going to try to make you afraid. The world's going to try to have you just insulate and isolate yourself from the world. The world's going to try to attract you to just join them. So it's either you're going to um, disappear and go find some place to live where you're in no context of, of the world, or you're going to fall in love with it. And either way, you're rendered neutral. And this is what Peter says to us. And here are the five things. Number one, we need to cheer up. We need to cheer up. Notice what verse 13 and 14 says. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? Now that's a proverb. And what Peter is saying is, is when we do good, there's a good chance people aren't going to harm you. I don't know of anybody that has been at a soup kitchen who's out serving food to someone and the person that's coming who's hungry to get a meal assaults the person that's trying to feed them, okay? Usually when we do something that is good, it usually renders a good response. And so what Peter's saying is one of the best ways that you can keep from being persecuted, remember these people are being run down by the government and taken into prison, and what Peter says is the best thing you can do is do good. Because the last thing that will, um, or the, the thing, the first thing that will keep them from doing that is seeing the good that you do that they see some real good reasons uh, to keep you in society instead of imprisoning you. And so he says, hey, the best way to stay free, the best way to um, not have people against you is to do good. That's why we are told with our enemies to heap burning coals on their head. Literally love them instead of persecuting them, instead of hating them, to pray for them. It's very hard for someone to punch you if you continue to turn the other cheek. 
And so what Jesus is telling us over and over again is show love, show brotherly kindness, be light in the world of darkness. And when that happens, there's a good chance you won't be persecuted. But he doesn't promise that. He says, but even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. There are two reasons why we as Christians should be full of good cheer. The first one is, is because we are able to do that which is good. Look at what it says in the text. If you are eager to do good. Let me ask you that question. There's a question mark there. And the question that we have to ask ourselves this morning is, are you eager to do what is good? Do you wake up? And you say, I got to go to that same rat hole of a job. And those pagan people, they curse all the time. They speak all kinds of terrible sexual stuff. I hate what they talk about. I hate how they joke. I hate them. I hate them. I hate them. Or do you wake up and say, God, thank you for taking me to a people who are in most need of you. I'm going to love them. And they're going to tell their bad jokes. And I'm going to serve them. And they're going to badmouth the name of Jesus. And that's okay because I'm going to love them and show the love of Christ to them each and every day. We should be cheered up to enter into the world. But many of us walk in with this loser limp. I'm just this minority Christian. I've got nothing to offer. I've got nothing that will change. What are you talking about? God sent Jonah, one guy with an eight-word message. Repent or Nineveh will fall. And the whole mass of them came to know the salvation of God. You don't think that can happen in your workplace? You don't think that can happen in your school? You don't, man, what, what, we have little faith. What a great opportunity. We have the God of the universe on our side. We're more than conquerors. And Jesus has given us the water that makes people never go thirsty. He brings light to the world of blindness. He heals those who are crippled. And he's given us the power through the gospel of Jesus Christ to change lives. And when we walk in as a loser Christian, we will never see anyone one for Christ. And so we need to be cheered up. And we need to get excited because God's got to work for us and we need to be eager to do that. Literally, that word eager is the word that was used for zealots. People that had a, uh, who were sold out for one particular cause. Meaning they were preoccupied. And their preoccupation was, what can I do for the gospel of Jesus Christ? The second reason why we need to be cheered up is seen in our response to trials and suffering. So we go in and we're all excited. I'm going to tell my workplace. I'm going to tell my school about Jesus. I'm going to live for Christ. And then the moment of truth happens. And your boss calls you in and he says, Tim, I know you're a believer. I know you're, you love Jesus. But if I hear any more about Jesus, you're done here. What do you, wait a minute. I thought I was more than a conqueror. Who's the conqueror now? The boss is the conqueror. But notice what he says. He says, even if that happens, even if they take away your job, even if they uh, put you in prison, even if they take your life, notice what he says. He says, but if you should suffer for what is right, you will lose. Right? That's what my translation says, right? Help me out. Is that what it says? We're going to lose? What does it say will happen? Help me. We'll be blessed. We will be blessed. Whatever the world brings towards us, we're going to be blessed. 
And when we begin to understand that, then there's going to be a different way we approach the world in our testimony. Now notice what he goes on to next. He says, don't give up. It's in those trials and in those moments where we're told we can't proclaim Christ or we can't do those things. And then that's when we start to give up in fear. Notice what the text says. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. I don't like how the NIV translates that at all. You should always worry when you see the same word used three different times. Notice the verse. Do not fear, number one, what they fear. Number two, do not be frightened, number three. This is how it more literally should be rendered. Do not fear how they intimidate to cause you to be troubled. Now that help us, helps us a lot. Our fear is, what will happen if I share my faith? Well, I might lose my job. Peter says, don't fear. Why would we be fearful of that? Because the world intimidates you. If you share Jesus, you'll lose your job. If you speak about Jesus in speech class, you won't get a good grade. And so they bully, they intimidate. And our response is, don't allow that to trouble us. That word troubled, or the word frightened there, is the same word that is used of King Herod when Jesus is born in Bethlehem. It says that Herod was greatly troubled. Another word was he was agitated. Internally, he, there was a commotion going on. And so what the writer here, Peter, is saying is he's saying, don't be afraid of how they may intimidate you and therefore then be cause trouble internally. But what we need to do is not to give up in that way, but to be ready to stand up. I love the story of the second century saint named Polycarp. Polycarp, 86 years old, Polycarp was a disciple of the Apostle John, and Polycarp is brought into the Colosseum. Hundreds, maybe thousands of people are watching this take place, and the governor of Rome looks at Polycarp at 86 years of age, this old man, he says, Polycarp, you renounce Jesus or we're putting you in prison. Polycarp, again, 86 years old, says, I will not renounce Jesus. And he says, if you're going to put me in prison, I won't be there very long. I'm 86 years old. So put me into prison. So the governor says, and this is both secular and historical. This isn't some Bible fairy tale. History tells us that Polycarp is then given a second opportunity. And the governor looks at Polycarp and he says, okay, jail and prison won't work. He says, I've got wild beasts outside the door. Renounce Jesus or we'll send them in. He says, I will not renounce my Savior and Lord who has blessed me these 86 years. He says, bring the animals in. They look hungry. The governor shakes his head. He doesn't know what to do. He says, fine. He says, we'll go ahead and we'll nail you to a stake and we'll burn you alive. To which Polycarp says, you do not make me afraid, O great governor. Who can be afraid of a fire that lasts for an hour when you governor and you people should be afraid of the fire that lasts forever? We need Polycarp action figures. That's a hero. Forget Jack Bauer. That's a hero. I want to be like Polycarp. You're going to take my job? Fine. More opportunities to proclaim Christ. More opportunities for my God to meet my needs in the riches of Christ Jesus. But what do we do? Oh, is me. Woe is me. What, what are we going to do? What are they, they're saying they may fire me. Is God not on our side? What can man do to us? Amen? 
We do not need to give up. We need not to fear. So what we should do is lift up. Lift up. What are we to lift up? The name of Jesus. Notice. But in your heart, set apart Christ as Lord. Simply put, what this means is whatever is your pedestal, okay? So we're going to say uh, this is the pedestal of who we are and what we're all about. The highest pedestal in our lives should have Christ on it. Everything else should be on lower pedestals. But what happens is, is we put us on that pedestal. We worship us and our priorities, and Jesus finds his way down here. The job of the believer, the way that we find joy amidst a world of hostility, the way we find peace in a world of fear is we keep raising Jesus higher and higher. The boss says, I'm going to fire you. Take it up with my supervisor. We're going to take your life, yeah, but you can't take my soul. And we keep elevating the idea that Jesus is preeminent and everybody in the world's a bunch of lackeys. Remember Pontius Pilate, what he says to Jesus? Don't you know I have the power and authority to release you, to give you back your life? And Jesus sits there and he says, are you kidding me? No authority on earth has been given by anybody on earth but my Father in heaven. Who gave the boss the job to fire, the opportunity to fire you? God did. Who gives you the ability to make wealth or to be poor? God does. And so what we need to do is in those moments, notice what Polycarp did. In those moments, he didn't sit there in fear and say, oh, governor, you're right, they're going to kill me. He said, fine. The animals kill me, I'm with the Lord. Praise God, I'm a happy man. We're going to put you in prison, that's fine. It'll give me more time to worship my Lord. And what he did over and over again is what we need to do over and over again is when those trials come and the inward commotion takes place, we raise Jesus up and we say, no, it's about him. It's all about him. Notice the next thing that we need to do. We need to speak up. We need to speak up. For some of us, we say, I'm just going to live a godly life. I'm just going to be the best employee that I can be. I'm just going to be the best husband I can be. I'm just going to be the best uh, neighbor I can be. But Tim, I'm not going to open my mouth. Notice what the scripture says. You set apart Christ as Lord and always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks to give the reason for the hope you have. Understand this. When you live a Christ-like life, I'm going to give you a promise. I'm going to give you a guarantee. When you live like Christ in this world, people are going to ask you about it. They're going to ask you about it. Because it goes so contrary to the way the world does things. We went and served some meals. Uh, Keith prayed about it. To the Caneland High School and Middle School, to the teachers. From the church, we just took a whole bunch of people, we cooked up food, and we served them lunch. And just said, you mean something to us. We love you, and we're thankful that you're here, and we want to be a blessing to you. And person after person says, why would you do this? What possessed you to do something? No one's ever done anything like this. They didn't expect it. And the reason why they didn't expect it is because it's never done. And so what we did, it fostered questions. And so then it comes back on us. Why did you do this? Well, here's the reason for the hope that I have. I love you. I'm thankful for the work you do, but you know what? Jesus loves you too, and Jesus wants to be in your life, and Jesus wants to minister to you, and he wants to walk you through this thing called life. Now we've given a reason 
for the hope that we have. Now, there's a couple things. Write this down. Number one, we need to be ready. We're very unprepared people. We're not ready to give the reason for the hope we have. And so opportunity after opportunity flies by us. And we just keep praying, Lord, give me opportunity. Give me opportunity. But we're not ready for them. So the first thing in speaking up is you've got to be ready for it. You've got to be ready for it. And it's going to come at any time. I'll never forget about four years ago, I got a call at 7.45. I had worked the night before. I was dog tired. And Amanda comes in and she says, it's the high school. I said, what is the high school? And I got nervous. They were going to take my diploma back. I was like, what do they want at this hour? We don't got any kids there. And one of the teachers says, the principal asked me to call you. A senior has just died. And we don't know what to tell the kids. And we're unprepared. And we know you lost a brother. And we know that you uh, are serving in a church. Would you come and share words of comfort? In five minutes, I don't remember what I wore. It was probably totally didn't match anything. I walk in barely to sleep out of my eyes. And I'm standing before 400 kids in the school gymnasium giving a reason for the hope that I have that even though my brother had been taken away, that salvation was found in Jesus. You don't think you're going to be given opportunities? And if I was sitting there, and I was like, okay, I, I know you're hurting. Where's that Bible verse? Um, uh, God helps those who help themselves. That works. No, we have to know the scriptures. The Bible says we need to be prepared in season and out of season. Tim, right when you're waking up, I'm going to throw you into the fire and I'm going to get you to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, even though you may not be ready. I need to be ready at all times. Are you? Are you ready for the moment that that friend or lost uh, co-worker comes to you and says, I know you go to church. I've seen you've carried your Bible around. Can I ask you about this question? And in that moment, either you're going to be ready or you're not. And what they don't want to hear is, you know, why? here's my number to my pastor. They don't want to hear that. They want to hear from you of the reason you have. So you need to be ready. You need to give a reason. Here's the reason why I love Jesus, why I'm a follower of Jesus. And then it needs to be reasonable. And what we do so many times is we get onto a high horse when we share the gospel and we start talking like this to people. And we start using the word you. Can I promise you something that you won't hear very often from this pulpit is the word you. You'll hear the word us and we, but you won't hear this. You want to know why? Because I'm the chief of sinners in this place. And the person who needs to hear it more than anybody, you're looking at them. And so the last thing you're going to see is this. And the last thing we should do into people is this. I didn't like it when people did this to me. And looking down at me, oh, you stupid, silly, rotten sinner. Oh, the dumb things you're doing. People don't want to hear that. They know that already. They would have never come to you and say, help me. And we don't need to do that. We need to do what it says with gentleness and respect. It has been said, Ray Pritchard, a man who's preached here a couple different times, says this, if you want to win some to the Lord, you must be winsome in the Lord. You understand that? If you want to be, if you want to winsome, meaning bring people into the kingdom, then you must be winsome. The word winsome means is that which is loving, that which attracts people to what you're doing, not pushing people away. So the opportunity is given, 
be full of grace. Let your conversation be seasoned with salt. And the final thing is we need to shape up. We need to speak up and we need to shape up. And what this literally means, it comes from the text, and that is in 1 Peter chapter 3. I turned the page here, I apologize. 1 Peter chapter 3 says, Keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Understand this. When we get accused of things as Christians, most of the time, they're right. We're judgmental. Would anybody dispute that we as Christians have been known to be incredibly judgmental? That we are um, unloving. Some of the most unloving people I know of are Christians. Can I give you a fact that I think I've shared some years ago? But as a caterer, I hear more complaints from my employees who are unbelievers about how Christians, and they don't know who they're Christians or not, but I know them to be followers of Jesus Christ, how they've treated my employees. The worst treatment has almost always come from unbelievers. What a testimony to my unbelieving employees. We fail. And so what we need to do to have a clear conscience to make sure we're doing all that we can is we need to live such good lives that when someone says something that accuses us of something, the world says, are you kidding me? Judgmental? Village Bible Church came out and they served food to us and they just loved on us and they've just asked, how can we help? Judgmental? I came in as a sinner and I wasn't judged. I was loved. I was shared what the, cro what the cross says about my sin. I was shared what the Bible says, but I was done so with respect and with honor. We need to do it in a reasonable way, but we must always, and it goes back to who we are, it goes back to what we do. We can't point our fingers to the world because I'll assure you with every finger that's pointed, uh, that we point at them, five will be pointed at us. We must live such good lives that they are able to glorify God on that day. We need to cheer up. We need to not give up. We need to lift up the name of Christ. We need to speak up because the opportunities are there. And we need to shape up so that we can stand not as hypocrites, but as people who follow and who proclaim the name of Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this time. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for what it's taught us today. And Lord, now we leave this place and we head out into that world, that world of chaos, that world of sin, that world that is, is just so dedicated to uh, going after you in your name. And Lord, it's so easy for us to cocoon ourselves in our homes and into our Christianity and to never engage the world. It's easy for us to turn around and just fall in love with the things of this world. Lord, I pray that we would seek your will and wisely and confidently engage this world as a believer in a world of darkness. Engage this world as salt invades a, a, a stake. To engage this world as light invades a world of darkness. Not so that people will say, what a great guy Tim is, what a great guy Steve is, or, or Sally is. What an incredible God they serve. And they may not even know that God, and so they may come and ask us questions. And Lord, in that moment, that we would clear our voices and we would speak with clarity of the reason why you're our Savior. And yet we would recognize 
that in doing so, that we once were lost, we once were blind, we once were crippled, far away from God, and it was your grace and your mercy that came to us. Lord, I pray that that would be a reality for us today. So as we leave, Lord, give us the strength, give us the power, so that we can be the bright light you've called us to, so we can be the steward of the testimony you've given us, so a dying world will be able to see it, will be able to hear it, and in turn be able to accept it. In Christ's name we pray, and all God's people said, amen.